I wish I was in the land of cotton Old time there or not Oh God, look away, look away Look away, Dixieland Welcome back to Michael and Us, a podcast no longer about Michael Moore. My name is Will Sloan. And I'm Luke Savage. I will come up with a better introduction. We really ought to have a better introduction yeah, now that it's three weeks in. We're, we're still uh, suffering from some dissonance in uh, at, at the here at the advent of Michael and Us 2.0 <laughs> as uh, we transition from being a novelty comedy podcast into, um, you know... Into the chronicler serious, of our times. Yeah, novelty serious podcast. But uh, we're back uh, fresh from uh, Sarah Palin, The Undefeated. We're oscillating back to uh, a more historic film. What did we watch this week, Will? This week we watched D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. From and, 1915. Uh, first of all, it's been, I think, three weeks since we've had an episode. It's been a while. Like, what, what's been up? What have you been up to? Uh, I went down to Boston and New York and met some people from Twitter. That's pretty cool. Did, did you like New York? What was it like being in the U.S. now? What, what, are, what are the spirits in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it was striking to me the weird combination of optimism and understandable kind of fear about what's to come. I think, you know, since I was meeting with a lot of left-wing people, I mean, from their point of view... You know, of course, they're terrified of Donald Trump, but they're also seeing kind of openings that, you know, would have been unfathomable five or six years ago. So it's a, you know, it's a strange mix. But uh, I enjoy Boston and New York tremendously in different ways. I know the former very well because my dad's lived there for most of the time anyway, since I was uh, 11 or 12. And uh, it's a great city. It's one of my favorite cities. It's so small. And yet it feels like a major city. So it's just perfect. Everything's right there. Have you been to Boston? Uh, once when once. I was in high school, I think. So I don't I have no handle on the it's, city at it's, all. It's a great it's a great city. I mean, you can walk between sort of Boston proper, Cambridge and Somerville uh, really, really easily. And New York is obviously New York. It's great. I had not been there for two decades. You, of course, lived there. I did. I and mean, I'm going this weekend for a visit. Yeah. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, it was great. But otherwise, I've been here, you know, li- like everyone. I've been following, you know, the aftermath of the election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, ju- it's just been kind of an interesting time, isn't it? This kind of limbo period. Yeah, I mean, and I think that I think everybody, well, a lot of people are still really having trouble adapting themselves to the idea that Donald Trump is going to be president, barring, like... In a few days, the... the electoral uh, college will... Yeah, vote. they'll vote for Hillary. They'll vote their conscience. <laughs> no, they're, they're going to install... Uh, well, Kurt Eichenwald from Newsweek, or from uh, Vanity Fair, rather, my, uh, my favorite commentator, one of the great voices of commentary today... He, of course, says that uh, their best move should be to install Paul Ryan. So. Well, he's uh, one of the rare principled conservatives, <laughs> I think. Yeah, uh, I mean, he wants to, he wants to like, liquidate the underclass, but, like, you know, he's going to have some class while doing it, <laughs> you know what I mean? If anybody is listening to this podcast, you know, uh, 50 years from now, I think people should know that this was the week that it was announced that Mitt Romney was not going to be Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. and. Somebody on Trump's transition team said that it's because Trump simply wanted to torture him, <laughs> which I think is just hilarious. Well, it's, it's moments like that when I like Trump. Oh my god! Just when he's just when he's like oh, taking time oh. out of his transition period just to like settle scores. Well, you know what I liked <laughs> was that Mitt Romney is also like, like there were all these liberals who, when Mitt Romney was being touted for Secretary of State, they were all like. Finally, there's going to be some competence. We'll have a steady hand in the helm. It's like, this is Mitt Romney we're talking about, you crazy. Like, I think that as long as you're anti Trump now, if you're like, no matter how far on the right you are, if you're not like 
brazenly racist, you can like reinvent yourself as uh, as woke to like your average dumbass liberal columnist. I guess the one other it. thing that's been kind of interesting about the transition period is just the kind of total lack of loyalty that Trump has had to all the people who have gotten him in office. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Giuliani and Christie and Newt Gingrich have yeah. all been hung out to dry. Well, I think it's striking that, well, no one should minimize the risks of a Trump presidency and the dangers of it, because, like, it's going to be really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his position is extremely weak. I mean, there are, I don't think there's been a president-elect, incoming president, that's had such low approval ratings across the board. You know, the Democratic Party's you know, conspiracies about Russian hacking or whatever. Well, the the unsubstantiated allegations about Russian or Russian hacking. That's actually um, our best hope because they're going to redo the election now. Right, of course. Um, that's what would happen in any other country. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you have Republicans joining calls for the Electoral College to, you know, to be briefed on the security matters by the CIA and things like that. You know, Trump doesn't, I mean, he doesn't have um, the institutional support that, any other incoming president would. Um, and while he is certainly going to be very dangerous, you know, I mean, especially just given his personal volatility, a figure like John Kasich or somebody like that, uh, who would be riding, you know, at 60% approval or something right now, if they'd been elected, uh, in some ways would be, I mean, they'd be more dangerous in that they'd be able to work with a Republican Congress in order to do some really terrifying shit and we've yet to see if trump is in a strong enough position to really do that i hope not well we may be in the the death knell of a nation so let's get back to let's go back to the naissance get over so i can see better is that dw griffin yes he looks all right doesn't he sure he's all right he made the birth of a nation oh that other man's walter houston I wish we could hear better. I saw him in a picture once and he's pretty good. Come on, we will hear better. Is it generally known that you're a southerner? (laughs) I should think it should be. It's been advertised enough. Yes, my father was a colonel in the Confederacy. Now I want to ask you a question. Far ahead. When you made the birth of a nation, did you tell your father's story? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Well, after you mention it, perhaps I did. I picked Birth of a Nation for this podcast, I guess for no other reason than that it's sort of like one of the foundational texts, really, upon which popular culture is built upon. Mm. Presumably, we're going to try to find some modern cultural resonance here. Mm. I don't necessarily want to contrive it. No. But watching the movie it's obviously incredibly dated but there are definitely strands of ideas here that continue to be relevant to the right yeah whether it's anxiety over voter fraud or sort of a a civil war revisionism and this kind of romanticization of states rights Mm -hmm. or this kind of i guess i would call it a hobbesian view of the electorate Mm -hmm. and all this worry about like the underclasses getting free stuff yeah the enfranchisement of the underclass yeah a a lot of that's all here yeah and also i think the psychology of victimhood which is Mm -hmm. so central to the right and uh, i mean if we want to talk about uh more current matters we could talk about i i mean we were making a lot of kind of cracks throughout the film about kind of you know alt-right stuff and and i think uh you know, while it was partly us just trying to get through a, you know, a 200 minute film, mm-hmm. um, there's something in the 
psychology of victimhood, which runs throughout this film that I think is very much, you know, still a part of the right wing psyche. And also the movie's kind of um, obsession over uh, miscegenation uh, and its fear of kind of hypersexualized black people. Mm. And it's and also this kind of strain of the movie that's that's kind of comparable to these white genocide people that you see now. Yeah. These people worried that like they're becoming a minority in their own country. Right. All of that is here and it seemed to lie dormant for mm-hmm. about, you know, 80 years and now it's back. Yeah. I mean this, this film, uh, you might call it like Southern identity, po- like white Southern yeah, identity politics. So but before we kind of get into that in more detail, let's just kind of lay out the film. This is a film from 1915 and I'm guessing most of the people listening to this podcast you know, all 10,000 of them probably haven't, uh, haven't seen it. Uh, and I don't blame them. Um, I, yeah. Everybody's heard of it. Yeah. I mean, it's not the kind of movie that you just throw on for an evening's entertainment. No. You know, like, I feel like I've been reading about this movie for my whole life. Yeah. And I am like, I've had it up to here with the kind of standard hack think piece that's written about this movie, which is, which is what, which is just that like it always, every article about this movie always begins with it's technically proficient. It's, but it's it, problematic. It's like here, here was a movie that defined an art form that was thrilling. Like nothing anybody had seen. And yet, and yet <laughs> it's unbelievably racist and, mm. and, you know, scratching their chin as they mm. write this, they say, how can we reconcile this? Mm-hmm. I frankly don't find it as much of a mystery as these dumb opinion writers seem well, to think like, it is. I mean, it's just so like, it, like it, it's no great mystery how this movie works. Yeah. And, that, and that's the same state argument made about every piece of art that's like grand, but, you know, not, I mean, you know, Triumph of the Will, which we talked about. Mm. S- similar kind of state discussions happen a- about it, and I don't think they're really worthwhile. But, although, although, I mean, technically proficient, but problematic, it wouldn't isn't the worst description of this film either, is it? There are parts of this movie that hold up incredibly well. Well, they're uh, bre- but, like breathtaking. Like the, the yeah. battle, the Civil War battle scenes uh, are, are just astonishing. The the and the climactic, the famous ride of the Klan at the end. Yeah. As deplorable as it is, it's just unbelievable to watch mm-hmm. the the scale at which. D.W. Griffith was able to create these images. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of scenes in this movie, like even even a more minor scene, like at the beginning, when all of the Confederate soldiers are on their horses and they're just like leaving town to mm. go off to war. Mm. And Griffith basically just sets his camera down and forces you to look at this for mm-hmm. a minute. You know, movies today, you know, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, movies today with their CGI and everything, mm-hmm. but like this is a movie that takes you back to kind of like the primal wonder that cinema must have had in its infancy. Yeah. Just being amazed at, look at all this stuff in the frame. Yeah. Uh, look at all the people they were able to assemble for this shot. Well, because the cinema of this era largely consists of fixed shots, although there's a mm-hmm. few other innovations in this film, like you know, paired shots where you have two separate scenes unfolding simultaneously. Mm. And, but you're, you're still dealing with kind of one camera. And so as a result, like Griffith's, Griffith's only choice is to just fill the frame with all kinds of stuff. So you get these great processions and, mm. and things like that. Anyway, I, I do think we should try to lay out the film just... Sure. Well, let's start with just a little bit of historical context for who these people are. Right. The two prime movers of this film are D.W. Griffith, mm-hmm. really the father of American cinema, mm-hmm. and Thomas W. Dixon, who was a Southern Baptist preacher. Both of these men were born, you know, shortly after the Civil War or uh, and grew up during Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of these men, I, I, Griffith did, I, and I believe Dixon also had Confederate uh, family mm-hmm. and, you know, grew up hearing kind of romanticized versions of the lost cause of the South. Mm-hmm. Griffith 
like from all the from the interviews I've read with him, he he just seemed to be like just kind of an idiot. I mm. mean, you know, a, a, a brilliant filmmaker in some ways, but just just an idiot. Dixon was the the real ideologue of this right. duo. So he wrote uh, the, the novel and the play on which this film was based. Now the novel is called something like March of the Clan. It, it's called it's called The Klansman, and he right. wrote it specifically as a rebuttal to Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Which is the famous abolitionist text. Mm-hmm. Dixon thought it was his mission to put forward the South's view of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And when you actually read some of Dixon's writing, it's kind of amazing. Like, he was obsessed with, like, the physical differences of yeah. black people. Yeah. He was His writing contains these long passages of just how disgusting their lips are or, uh, or the shapes. Like, just awful, awful right. stuff. And he was also obsessed with interracial sex. Right. Uh, he thought it was just barbaric. Right. Oddly enough, both of these men would not have considered themselves racist, right. which, which is incredible. Well, of course, the film begins with a wonderful disclaimer that says, you know, the events about to be depicted are purely just a, you know, historical document. Uh, they, we, no slight is intended against not, not, any yeah. race or, or people or whatever. Yeah, like, not, not meant to reflect any modern day races or creeds or yeah. something, <laughs> wow, which, which is, is really covering their ass. Yeah. Um, but so this film opens kind of in the months before the Civil War breaks out. It's largely a kind of epic historical film. Uh, there are some actual characters in it, although mostly we found, I think, that the kind of romance and and the rest of it aren't aren't that interesting. Um, no, I mean it's kind of window dressing. It focuses on, you know, this plantation family in the uh, uh, antebellum south. There's some romantic stuff. Uh, there there's, are, a, there's a brother from up from Pennsylvania who's like working in Pennsylvania who's who fights for the union. And a brother who and lives brother in the fights, south. Yeah, and they get both get killed. You know, playing off that famous metaphor of it being a war where brother fought brother. Right. And there are also two sisters whose main function in the movie is to be these pure beings who right. who are always at risk of being raped by black men. Yeah, yeah. As you said, their story is like pretty boring, especially in the context of everything else that happens in this movie. Well, I mean, they're just they're just devices, aren't they? They're not yeah. really like yeah. But what he does that's interesting is setting up you know the the micro and the macro in yeah. contrast to each other. I mean, this is very much a big sweeping historical story where you see like Abraham Lincoln and everything. But he knows that there needs to be some emotional connection. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the movie, when the clan are trying to rescue this family mm-hmm. from being raped by black people, mm-hmm. like it, it has an emotional connection. It, it's not this right. abstract concept right. of America. It's a family. Right, right. And so basically, I mean, the, the plot of the film is very simple. We, we begin with, you know, it's this it's kind of this family's journey through the Civil War. The actual war itself is largely captured through, I mean, the war breaks out and then kind of see some fighting and then you see... Uh, I mean, their house gets pillaged. They're in South Carolina somewhere, presumably in Charleston. And uh, and then the there's a second battle sequence, which I guess is uh, the Battle of Appomattox. An interesting omission is that, you know, the war kind of breaks out, but it's the Confederacy, in fact, triggered the war by attacking Fort Sumter. And mm. that is just not yeah. in the film for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's so... You know, it should be sort of on record that in the most famous movie about the American Civil War, the inciting event of the war is just not even mentioned, mm-hmm. um, which I think speaks to how kind of fundamentally dishonest this this film is in a, from a historical perspective even, um, and how kind of stupid its proclamations about being like a historical document, all these, all the title cards about like, this scene recreates like mm-hmm. a, hist- it's a historical facsimile of like this photo or whatever, like, come mm-hmm. on. 
So you then see the kind of humiliation of the South after Appomattox and the surrender of Lee. There's then a kind of, um, you know, a, a very absurd portrayal of Reconstruction where, you know, you see what the newly enfranchised black men kind of do. They're, they're portrayed as um, overly sexual, kind of very, like ruled by their, their base instincts. Creatures like of pure ed. There's a, so after they win, after they sweep the state house in and win a, uh, a legislative majority, uh, you kind of see them all, um, you know, they're, they're drinking and one of them's eating chicken. And then there are some white women that are in the galley and they're all kind of looking up at them like lustfully. And then the speaker has to say like, you know, shoes and socks must be worn in the, in the chamber. And, and also like all of these, uh, black people in, in Congress or, or whatever, right. whatever legislative body yeah. this is, are passing laws like for interracial marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and like they pass, like motion is carried. All black officers must be saluted by white men, like <laughs> in the streets or whatever. I um, mean, it, it is funny. You mentioned those title cards that yeah. show up because like Griffith every once in a while he'll show a title card that has a source connected to it mm-hmm. like it, it'll we'll say an historical tableau yeah. for that state house it says uh you know taken from the 1870 photo the mm. Columbia state right. I, I can't find this photo I mean no. it's I mean well it's, it's, it's like an 1870 photo but yeah but I, but I mean it's like just impossible to imagine yeah. anything like this happening no and I mean the um so so I mean you see kind of the humiliations of reconstruction which culminate um in you know so part one is just the war of you know the first 90 minutes and the, the, the kind of latter 90 minutes are about reconstruction and you know after we see kind of the uh chaos of reconstruction as you know the newly enfranchised uh black men are lining up to get you know free welfare and stuff like that and we and we see them like stuffing the ballot box yeah they're just and... doing all kinds of stuff um then we see the birth of the clan which is depicted as kind of this great emancipatory force for for liberty that's defending the south against what's essentially like depicted as almost a foreign occupation that's been you Mm. know imposed on the south and this culminates in you know this kind of ultimate battle scene which is also historically inaccurate where there is you know hundreds there are hundreds of clansmen on horseback kind of rescuing the the central family from kind of an onslaught by all these like black union soldiers that are just kind of pillaging and you know have guns and such you uh you feel as though it were true yes i feel so true is that blade oh that's natural enough you know and you've heard your father tell about fighting day after day night after night and having nothing to eat but parched corn and about your mother staying up night after night sewing robes for the clan the clan at that time was needed and served a purpose. Yes, I think it's true. But as Pontius Pilate said, truth, what is the truth? Oh, and there's also, the, I guess the other important thing in part two is there's the trial of Goss. Uh, the right. The quote trial. The, the, the real kind of inciting incident for, uh, for the clan is mm-hmm. uh, that Gus is a is a freed slave whose head has been filled with crazy ideas by these carpetbaggers and these yeah. uh, these these cynics who have come from up north mm-hmm. and he wants to rape one of the the main white women mm-hmm. from one of the sisters from this family and instead of of course instead of succumbing to him you know death before dishonor she mm-hmm. she jumps from atop a cliff mm-hmm. 
And the clan, you know, of course, get together to try and kill Gus. Yeah, and they do, in fact, kill Gus. You know, I, I think this might have been based on a historical incident, but of course it's, you know, an example of just distorted history of well, they, taking they... one historical incident. And, I mean, think of all the think think of all the, the black slaves who were raped by their owners. I mean the it's it's simply inaccurate that there were these kind of large scale I mean we looked we looked it up to see if there was a um, if there was any accuracy to kind of this final scene in the film mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's just not accurate that there were like large scale clan actions you know on on that yeah. you know that are as large as the one depicted in the mm-hmm. uh, in the film which is like they're portrayed mm-hmm. as an army basically mm-hmm. But like what 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 Griffith does with Gus is like, it's it's pretty vile. The it, whole it, Gus it, thing, it's maybe. vile, but it's like so typical of like what you see in just like the gutter media today, where yeah. it'll be like you'll see on the front page of. Well, it's like the Daily Mail or something. Yeah, it's like, like you'll see on the it's front. It's always like it's always like there's always a story. Yeah, you know, here, here's here's a refugee who killed somebody. Yeah, and... well, or the Daily Mail, of course, it was uh, last week or the week before ran that story about how. Uh, the, the the person who murdered Labor MP Joe Cox, you know, only did so because he he was worried that uh, you know she was going to put an immigrant in his council house right. or whatever. You know, right. it's always you know all uh, the the tabloid press or this movie has mm-hmm. to do is kind of infer something like that, and all the work is sure. Or the, the Toronto Sun will always have a, a cover story about look at this look at this pedophile who who only got a year in prison right. which is which is supposed to make us think well all pedophiles are only getting a year in prison right, right. and there's something fundamentally wrong with the justice system right right so i mean that's kind of a narrative rundown of the film let's maybe now get into some of the i mean we've kind of touched on some of it already you know what are kind of the main themes of this film i mean i think uh miscegenation more than anything yeah. uh the primary villain of the movie is uh silas lynch the mm-hmm. mulatto mm-hmm. uh one of these carpetbaggers who's come to rouse an unruly black population yeah uh the movie has like kind of wants to have it both ways with, with uh the black population it almost tries to cover itself against racism by depicting them as sort of like naive, childlike people who were taken advantage of by right. uh, by the North. But at the same time, it also shows them like when they're stuffing the ballot box as like you know being very cynical themselves and being like being like, yeah. oh hey, look at all this free shit we got. Let's uh, let yeah, I mean, let's I take think, advantage of the system. I mean, I think the uh, I mean slavery, the kind of cultural ethos that that you know justified it, you know, had a lot to do with this idea that. Um, you know, I mean, there was like a sort of race science to it. It's like there are lesser races and they're in need of tutelage. Um, and I mean, which was the argument on the kind of American right, you know, right up through the kind of, you know, Buckley Goldwater, you know, <laughs> yeah. period. like this idea that um, you can't just give people freedom because mm-hmm. they're not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a trope, I think, of a lot of kind of, uh, ra- you know, racism and, and imperialism as well. That's the like moral praxis, which mm-hmm. it uses to use a word that I hate and is pretentious uh, praxis. That's like that's how it justifies itself, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we're we're only ruling over them like for their own good, which is I think why anytime you see a black character in this film, they're always depicted as like unless they're in the kind of idyllic pre-civil war, pre-abolition, you know, cotton uh, plantations. They're they're just like childlike and petulant mm-hmm. and ruled by their kind of carnal instincts. Although again, like covering itself from accusations of racism it also shows the you know the slaves of the plantation that we follow through the movie that plantation are very sympathetic 
So in the big battle scene at the end, we see them like throwing stuff at, you know, at the evil black people. Like the the movie seems in favor of black people who know their place. Yeah. Silas Lynch, the movie has special contempt for because the idea of a mulatto is so like disgusting to this movie's worldview. Like somebody who is like impure and doesn't belong. The movie cares a lot about purity. Yeah. Let's talk about the the way Abraham Lincoln is depicted in this film, because it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, it's not accurate. When we first see Lincoln, I think it sets us up to think he's going to be seen not sympathetically. Mm. We see him, you know, setting the seeds of demolishing states' rights. Mm. But it shows him as being a steady hand and a sympathetic leader who Mm. would have guided Reconstruction had he not been killed. Mm. Oddly enough... I know Dixon was very sympathetic towards Lincoln mm. and uh, Griffith also Griffith later made a biopic of Lincoln mm. that was very uh, adulatory of him. They both seem to admire him for being able to unite both the North and the South by saying the, the slaves can be freed, but also they're not equal. They seem to admire the fact that Lincoln made that acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it seems to me that by the, by the time this film was made, Lincoln was such a kind of potent force in the popular imagination you can't really do an anti Abe Lincoln film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Lincoln is also kind of portrayed as a, as somebody who's trying to be an honest broker, but is at the mercy of like these radical abolitionists who keep being right. referred to, you know, as the radicals or whatever. And they're not really like, I guess like any kind of caricatured villain, they're never really sketched out. They're just kind of referred to, you know, with their dangerous ideas of enfranchising the black population. Mm-hmm. Oh, what did you think of the movie's blackface? Uh, I mean, <laughs> didn't like it. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, it's it's appalling, and like you actually never get used to it. I mean, I guess the use of blackface would have been extremely standard in 1915, but um, it seems like Griffith is trying to portray all of the black men depicted in the film as like demonic. Well, all of the main characters are. Pl- played by white men in blackface. Mm-hmm. A lot of the extras are actual black people. Mm-hmm. What was interesting about the scene with Gus, I don't think I'm the first person to make this insight, but he looks like a white man in blackface. Yeah. I think that if if he were actually played by a black man in 1915, a scene involving an attempted rape by a slave would have just been unpalatable to audiences. Mm. I think audiences at that time like just could not have accepted it they would have needed to have known it was a white man in blackface well and this film came out i guess just a few years before 
the Klan, you know, peaked again because the the Klan had a huge resurgence in the 1920s. As a direct result of this film, you Mm -hmm. know, they used this movie as a recruiting tool. And Griffith and Dixon were both opposed to that, oddly enough. Right. They thought that the Klan served to function in Reconstruction and didn't serve it anymore in the 20th century. And so Griffith, I mean, what was his trajectory after this? Uh, You know, I've heard sort of conflicting reports of his response to the response to this movie. Mm -hmm. Many people say he was surprised that it was so controversial because even though this movie was wildly successful, it was protested in every state and it caused riots and it caused lynchings. Um, There are many people who will vouch and say he was surprised because he thought, oh, this is just how everyone viewed history. Like, Mm -hmm. this is how history is. Uh, The year after this, he made Intolerance. Mm -hmm. Over the years, people have tried to spin it as his, like, mea culpa for Birth of a Nation, because mm-hmm. it's a movie about intolerance at various at various times in history. But really, he saw himself as the aggrieved person. Mm-hmm. He thought that people were being intolerant to his views, which which is crazy. It's kind of like that argument that that sort of racists and homophobes will make today it's like oh well because because you won't you won't let me not marry a gay person yeah you're you're a real real bigot yeah (laughs) yeah later on griffith made a movie called broken blossoms which is sort of interesting because it has an early example of an interracial romance an unrequited interracial romance between a a chinese guy and a white woman how's a romance if it's unrequited because he's in love with her. Oh, I see. Okay. I mean, she's That's not, okay. she's she's not in love with him. I mean, listen, it's D.W. Griffith and right. it's the 1920s. It's right. unrequited mm-hmm. and it's one-sided. Right. You know, it was right. it was right. highly unusual. And then in 1930, he made an Abraham Lincoln biopic, yeah. which strangely enough opens with a very harrowing depiction of a slave ship carrying slaves across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. and it includes a scene of, you know, somebody throwing a dead slave's body over overboard. Right. I mean, the rest of the movie really has nothing to do with slavery. It's sort of a non sequitur opening. Mm-hmm. But I can't think of another depiction, the brutal reality of slavery, that's quite as vivid until right. at least the 1960s and or that, 70s. that's probably on YouTube, right? Probably, yeah. 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 And I mean, we should say, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure no one listening has time, has requisite 200 minutes to watch this film, and I wouldn't recommend it. But, you know... If you're interested, go. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Watch any kind of 15 minutes, and you'll get the get the idea. Uh, around the time Griffith put this movie out, he seemed to be going after. He he seemed to conceptualize movies as being able to offer a superior form of history, an unbiased form of history. He was quoted as saying, The foremost educators of the country have urged upon motion picture producers to put away the slapstick comedies, the ridiculous sentimental mush stories, the imitation of the fiction of the cheap magazines, and go into the fields of history for our subjects. He said, The time will come when the children in public schools will be taught practically everything by moving pictures. Certainly they will never be obliged to read history again. He said, Imagine a public library of the near future, for instance. There will be long rows of boxes or pillars, properly classified and indexed, of course. At each box, a push button, and before each box, a seat. Suppose you wish to read up on a certain episode of Napoleon's life. Instead of consulting all the authorities, waiting laboriously through a host of books, and ending bewildered, without a clear idea of exactly what did happen, and confused at every point by conflicting opinions, you will merely seat yourself at a properly adjusted window in a scientifically prepared room, press the button, and actually see what happened. There will be no opinions expressed. You will merely be present at the making of history. 
Uh, I mean, it's absolutely absurd. You know I mean, what I think <laughs> about that is it reminds me of like the kind of technology fetishism that you see in like really dumb, you know, billionaire funded education reform today. <laughs> yeah, where it'll yeah. be some moron who has like you know a billion dollars to spare, and they sink it into some you know wretched venture capital thing in latin america where it's like we're going to replace public schools with computers mm -hmm. and then you know all it is is just you know children can learn through the internet and we'll have these stupid e-courses and it like doesn't solve any of the problems with education like yeah. you know people being poor and yeah <laughs> and yeah. things like that it just it's just it's it's an early ver like uh incarnation of that every problem can be solved with technology we can just mm -hmm. rationalize every process mm -hmm. even like learning about an incident in Napoleon's life. But, you know, you can see in this movie him trying to strive for a version of this during those historical tableaus in the movie that he calls, you know, an historical incident. Mm -hmm. The narrative will almost stop dead in its tracks to show you, like, Abraham Lincoln sitting at a desk surrounded by people doing some famous historical action. He's actually going for an objective depiction of history, I mean, the idea that you could have history without opinion, like we're going to render historians irrelevant mm -hmm. by simply depicting the history as as it unfolds is like I mean, hilarious. That's a very naive view. And I mean, my impression based on your description of the relationship between uh, Griffith and what's the fellow who wrote the novel? Dixon. Dixon is that, you know, Griffith seems somebody, he seems to be somebody who was kind of, you know, in inculcated just through cultural osmosis with this like, you know, belief about the South being the real victim and, and, th and you know, Reconstruction being a moral evil and abolition being, you know, an evil and th this kind of thing. But he doesn't seem to have, like, been a militant believer in all this stuff where it seems like the other guy really was. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it seems like maybe Griffith was somebody who was technically very proficient and, you know, was able to make movies on this sweeping scale, but, you know, wasn't necessarily a, a thinker. Yes. You know, and that based on kind of um, what you've said about his autobiography and his writing, that's kind of the impression I get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny when people talk about Griffith, the people who knew him, like Lillian Gish, who is in this movie, people would say, you know, the movie was so racist. And she would say, oh, don't you understand? Mr. Griffith loved the Negroes. Oh he God. grew up among them. Oh, my God. You know. You know, he he loved them like a father so would that, love that, them. So that that was like uh, that was like the I'm not racist because I have some black friends of its time. The only other thing I would say about the movie, just as a historical document, is like I've heard it said that um, you know every movie is a documentary of its own making, mm -hmm. and just as as something to watch, like when you watch all these clan clansmen on their horses, it really is like all these guys on horses that have been marshaled into this like spectacle. Mm -hmm. I would recommend people watch this movie just to be able to see what it looks like. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, it's just a hard slog at 200 minutes or whatever. So if you want an abridged version, uh, yeah. you have some more time to enjoy your, your life in the hours sure. when you're not working. Um, you're telling people not to watch this like foundational document of Americana? I'm this... telling people not to waste like 200 minutes with like, an absurdly racist film <laughs> just because it's technically proficient. Take yeah. 15 minutes, watch like some of the war footage or, you know, some of the stuff towards the end. And well, you know, get it. you know, Luke, there's an interesting dichotomy with this movie that keeps me up at night. It's, it's technically brilliant. Um, it, it's, it's one of the most important films ever made. And yet, and yet it is extremely racist. Then I just stood the test of time. 
still considered to be the best picture that was ever made. Thank I'll you. make you feel proud. Sir, thank you very much for that. If I thought you really thought it was the best picture ever made, I would be tempted to be a little proud. But I don't know. You never get into those things, you know. You never get into those things, the uh, things that you expect to get more to get. But it, it, it had the fury of life in it. I mean, it, it made your blood, oh, it made your blood tingle. Well, maybe there was something in it, but I don't think it, I deserve the credit. It was about something. You can tell easily a story about something. It was about a tremendous struggle. It's about a story of people that were fighting desperately against great odds, great sacrifices, suffering, death. It was a great struggle, a great story. A story where young girls used to wear cotton or ermine, and where the boys imagined. Well, I think that about covers it. Yeah, so we don't know what we're going to do uh, next, but, you know, if we kind of follow the pattern we've established, I think we'll we'll go with something a little more current. Uh, we haven't uh, yet done kind of a liberal propaganda film, at least not since our uh, insanely detailed foray into the opus of Michael Moore, or the, the corpus, excuse me, of Michael Moore. But uh, we'll have something, uh, you know, probably in, you know, two to three weeks. We got the Christmas mm-hmm. break coming up. You're going to New York, but uh, we'll have something for you soon. And, you know, I got to go to Midnight Mass. So, <laughs> so that'll take up some time. Uh, so if we uh, if we don't see you uh, before then, happy holidays to everybody. And uh, we will see you with a liberal piece of propaganda in 2017. Now watch this drive. Oh, way down south in New York City, the cotton grows on the trees so pretty on the trees on the trees in the south south brooklyn oh south of the bronx where i was born the songs are rotten and the jokes are corn look away get away get away tris we're hungry